0: what we're actually seeing with the demand trend of sugar is that it's rising globally. That's why we're seeing the prices go up so aggressively Is it's really a demand side, even in light of higher interest rates and slowing growth in many parts of the global economy, or at least some parts of the global economy. We've not seen demand drop off for sugar all that much.
1: You're listening to IBKR Podcasts. Find more conversations at ibkrpodcasts.com. Please remember any trading discussions are for information purposes only and are not intended to portray recommendations. Please listen to further disclosures at the end of today's episode. Now, welcome to our show. Hello and welcome to IBQR Podcasts. I'm Stephen Levine, Senior Market Analyst at Interactive Brokers, I'm your host for today's program. Very fortunate to have Sean McGovern, Vice President of Research at Macalindon Research Partners back with us again for our ongoing series on agricultural commodities. Macalindon Research Partners is an independent investment strategy group. They focus on identifying alpha generating investment themes and they've got a lot of great commentary on our Traders Insight platform. You'll wanna check that out. Great to have you back, Sean. Yeah, great to be back. Jeff Praisman's also here with us. He's our Senior Trading Education Specialist here at IBKR. How are you, Jeff? I'm doing well, Steve. Good to uh, see you and Sean again. Very happy to have you here. Jeff's been using our trader workstation platform and tools along with his own research. He's provided us with some really great insights into the performance of futures prices, as well as related company stocks and other instruments from coffee to wheat to corn, cocoa, and cattle. You can check out our past podcasts for some great information there. He'll be helping us out today on the highs and lows of the sugar futures market. Excited to be talking about that today and how it might be affecting breakfast cereals. So just wanted to kick things off with some fun facts. Around the mid-19th century, a New Orleans-born gentleman named Norbert Rieu invented a sugar refining process for production that transformed, it really revolutionized the industry. It effectively commoditized sugar from what was sort of a luxury item prior to that and made the United States a global leader in sugar production. He's really an interesting and inspiring historical figure. I do urge listeners to learn more about him. But it was also in the 19th century that breakfast cereals were born, notably with John Harvey Kellogg's granola and later cornflakes, as well as CW Post's grape nuts. A lot of fascinating stories behind those products as well. And then sugar futures began trading in the U.S. on the Coffee, Sugar, and Cocoa Exchange in New York and the New York Board of Trade in 1914. And I suppose without the commoditization of sugar, people couldn't actually pour it over their cornflakes or buy Frosted Flakes or have the opportunity to purchase any number of sugar-laden cereal brands like Lucky Charms or Fruity Pebbles. It's a market really dominated by only four companies and we'll be exploring that. In fact, according to National Cereal Day, yeah, that there's a National Cereal Day apparently, it's on March 7th, so mark your calendars. According to National Cereal Day, Roughly half of the U.S. population start their day off with a bowl of cereal. This adds up to around 2.7 billion boxes of cereal sold every year. And according to them, it's enough to wrap around the entire planet Earth 13 times over. That's a lot of cereal. So, okay, it's been a little over a century shot since sugar futures began trading in the U.S.
0: A hundred years ago it started, so what's it look like today? Let's start there. Well, just give me one second here because you're telling me now for the first (laughs) time I've missed National Serial Day this year. And it's kind of devastating because I guess I have to wait so many months now. And, uh, yeah, extremely underrated holiday. But I did miss it this year. But um, March 7th, mark your calendar, March 7th. (laughs) I will. I'm actually going to be preparing for that starting tomorrow. Okay. You know, we're going to be ready for it next year. But yeah, no. So uh, sugar futures are a commodity futures contract that can be traded on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, Intercontinental Exchange. So you're looking at the CME or the ICE. There's a couple of different types of sugar contracts out there, and we can get into that. But if we're talking about the most widely traded contract, that's going to be sugar number 11, and it's going to be raw sugar. And one contract is going to be worth 112,000 pounds. The contract series is only four months. So you've got March, May, July, and October. And that puts the current front month in October. So there's a sugar number 11. You're saying that's
1: the most liquid contract. There's other numbers, like sugar number 16 I saw.
0: Are there other numbers? This is like red dye number three or something.
1: I mean, <laughs> how does that work?
0: Do they mean anything? Number 16 is going to relate to the delivery of cane sugar of U.S. or duty-free origin. The U.S. has these long-standing subsidies and tariff programs that supports our domestic country's sugar farmers. So at least 85% of annual sugar purchases have to originate from the domestic market, and number 16 is going to fill that need. It's also going to trade at a higher price than number 11. There are also white sugar futures, and that's number 5. So number 11, raw sugar, is an unrefined industrial product that is not really for human consumption. Don't eat that. Sometimes you'll see things like sugar in the raw or products claiming to be raw sugar, but they're not actually raw if they're being sold in the United States. That is totally illegal. So, uh, as I said, number five, white sugar is going to be what you're putting in your coffee, drinking your soda, so on and so forth. That's what you would really recognize as table sugar.
1: Okay. But
0: number 11, the raw sugar, that gets put through Ria's
1: refining process. And that comes out in the end as the kind of sugar that gets bought by producers, for example, like the cereal companies. Right, exactly. So, Jeff, looking at this trader workstation, how are these sugar futures performing? I mean, are you seeing any interesting trends there?
2: Yeah. So actually, Sugar11 is trading you know, near its yearly high. I think April was above 27. It really hasn't seen this level in general since probably back in October 2017. I'm just looking at the charting feature on the trader workstation. And then Sean mentioned Sugar16, number 16, which of course, as you said, is the hedging product for delivery of cane sugar. That seems like it was relatively flat between 2008 to late 2020, and it's just kind of climbing up now as well.
1: So, Sean, these sugar features are at fairly elevated levels, it seems. Before maybe talking about the performance and some of the
0: drivers, you know, how big is this industry globally? Well, in total, there's about 180 million tons of sugar produced annually. Brazil is the biggest exporter by far, with over 28 million tons exported in the 2022 to 2023 marketing season. You also have Thailand and India as the next largest exporters, but they're really only putting out a combined 17 or 18 million tons. That just shows how significant Brazil's domination of this global market is. And this year, India limited their global exports to just 6.1 million tons in this marketing season. That was down from 11 in the prior year, and they met that all the way back in May. So Brazil has been leaned on heavily to fill that gap. That reliance should become even greater next year, as India is expected to ban exports of sugar totally in the next marketing year.
1: What are they doing that for? And their population internally, domestically, need the sugar.
0: Yes, but they've seen a big drop off in output totally. India has really strict restrictions on a lot of their crops, like wheat and other things. And sugar is one of those products that they're going to look to protect their domestic market before thinking about the global market. So yeah, totally no sugar going out of India next year. Wow. So I suppose this is going to put some pressure on producer and consumer prices. Where are they now? And where do you think they might be going? Well, we actually do have a consumer price index category for sugar and sweets. That's what it's called. That comes out from the BLS. The problem is that it's only calculated twice per year for the, the first and the second half. That's obviously very infrequent. But what we can see is that the year over year gain in sugar and sweets prices jumped out to an all time high of around 13% in the second half of 2022. But that increase slowed to 10.9% in the first half of this year. If you look back to some of the headline CPI prints throughout the first half of 2023, those were coming between 3 to 6%. So illustrating how aggressively this commodity has risen, really, when compared to broader inflationary pressures. On the producer side of the equation, there's a variety of sugar-related sub-indices in the PPI, and it appears that the cost pressures mostly rose in line with price hikes that have been passed on to consumers. So, For example, the annual gain in the PPI for sugar confectionery product manufacturing That peaked at 11.8% last September, but that's been falling to below 9% since then. There's been a few headlines over the past several months about an emergent sugar candy shortages this Halloween in the U.S., which obviously would be terrible, but seems unlikely that'll be the case. And overall, the softer gains in the prices of sugar products may be following a broader trend of disinflation in the economy. All of this is highly dependent on commodity prices for sugar, but obviously companies are going to be beholden to what consumers are willing to pay as well. Based on some of the strong sales numbers we talked about from Mondelez and Hershey on our May podcast with the cocoa futures, right? It doesn't look like some of the big names are having too many issues selling their sugar-rich products. Well, we'll see. We'll see because these cereals seem to be suffering some
1: pain pretty recently, but we'll come back to that. You know, I'd love to understand what your outlook on the
0: market could say for the rest of the year is? What are you going to be looking for? So we're going to be looking at weather for sure. As always, traders are looking at weather, right? And as far as Brazil goes, the center south of the country, that's the most important place to watch. That's where most of the sugar growing goes on. The weather in that area has been pretty dry recently, which actually favors the harvest this time of year, since it makes farmers' jobs a lot easier. Both the sugarcane crush, which is the actual sugarcane they're taking out, they're processing, and resulting sugar output were up year over year in the back half of July and rose by a third in the first half of August, which has probably helped to keep those futures prices off the 2023 peak that we talked about, which was reached back in April. Part of that could also be tied to uncertainty regarding interest rates as well and things like that. But just sticking with the weather for a second, we're really looking at anomalies, And there's a very high probability that a strong El Nino, which has been talked about in the media, that is probably going to be a critical factor for production across the world. This is the meteorological phenomenon that causes unusual warming of surface waters in the Pacific Ocean. So it sounds a little bit mundane at first, but this El Nino has wide-flung implications across the globe, places like Brazil, right? We're going to get probably soggier, rain-intensive weather. Southeast Asian nations like Thailand can expect dryness and potential drought. And these are two nations we already talked about. Back in July, Bloomberg had reported rainfall across Thailand, maybe as much as 10% below the average in the monsoon season. And that forecast wasn't even counting for the impact of El Nino. Conversely, heavier rains, than unusual in Brazil, that's going to make harvesting more difficult. You know, rain is obviously good for crops, but generally mud, flooding, not good for harvesting, makes the farmer's jobs a lot harder. The NOAA, their latest El Nino update, says that there's uh, more than 95% chance that the El Nino event will last through February 2024. So this is a concern that will cover the rest of 2023 at least. And the last instance of a strong El Nino was back in 2015, 2016 marketing year. And that was responsible for wiping out several million tons of sugar output. Wow. So maybe sweet for sugar prices, but sounds like overall a fairly bitter forecast. It really depends. I mean, this is all kind of up in the air. El Nino is very, very uh, unpredictable. Yeah. That's why we call it anomalies. Now, we know what typically happens, and it seems like a very high chance we will get these anomalies. And if demand remains strong for sugar, then it seems like we're going to get more of the same. I know we touched on
1: breakfast cereals, and they use a lot of sugar. And from what I understand, the cost share of sugar as a raw material in breakfast cereal manufacturing is among the highest, if not the highest, of just about all products containing sugar. I read according to one study, uses data from the economic census, it's nearly 33%, placing it higher than confectionery products, that's non-chocolate and chocolate as well as ice cream and frozen dessert manufacturing and soft drinks all by fairly wide margins so i took a look at some of the more popular ready-to-eat breakfast cereals and i'm sorry to scare y'all i don't know if you i'm sure you already know it already but their respective percent daily value that's percent dv of sugar and people listening can look at the backs of these boxes and look at percent dv and added sugar just keep in mind that the cdc recommends that americans two years and older should keep their intake of added sugars to less than 10% of their total daily calories, less than 10%. And the USDA places any amount of sugar over 21% per serving as exceeding their limit in their child and adult care food program. That's CACFP for short. So I'm looking at the labels and I'm seeing brands like, okay, Honey Nut Cheerios from General Mills. By some counts, one of the most popular breakfast cereals, more than 129 million boxes sold annually. 24% total sugar is a percent DV, or nearly 32 percent per serving. It's exactly the same with Kellogg's Frosted Flakes, sells around 132 million boxes a year. Captain Crunch Crunch, Crunch Berries, total sugar, that's 43% by serving. And on the borderline of the USDA's program limits, hosts honey-roasted honey bunches of oats, 16% DV, or 19.5% per serving, life cereal from Quaker Oats, now Quaker Oats is owned by Pepsi, 15% daily value, 19% per serving, and probably among the lowest is Cheerios with only 4.6% of sugar per serving. I can't say I'm too surprised, but these cereals can't be all that good for you. In fact, I think Lucky Charms, one cereal brand that's been banned in certain countries like Norway and Austria, given its use of food dyes, like Yellow 5, we talked about Red Dye 3, well, this is Yellow 5 yellow 6, red 40. Because of these additives, the product's also required to wear a warning label in the EU. This was according to Stacker. a site provides data-driven journalism. They also say that frosted flakes, honey bunches of oats, Rice Krispies all contain a flavor enhancer called BHT, which the site claims is a potential carcinogen. And while the evidence for that's inconclusive, these products are still banned in Japan, as well as the EU. That goes on and on. I mean, I remember last year the FDA looked into mass complaints. I think over 8,500 self-reports were made last year. People were basically claiming that Lucky Charms made them violently ill, like they'd been poisoned. Cheerios, I think to some extent as well. FDA didn't find anything in its investigation that gave the claims any merit, but still kind of alarming. And to a lesser degree, Kellogg's recalled honey smacks they used to be called sugar smacks in 2018 after uh, 135 people across multiple states that they felt sick after eating it. About 34, 35, I understand, were hospitalized. So this is all just very alarming. And they have these cartoon characters on them as mascots, and they seem very friendly and positioned towards children. And um, so I also recently passed by a box called Coco Munchies. I had this hippopotamus with like four teeth. Forty-seven percent sugar per serving. It's like over twice the amount the USDA's program is stated as a limit. Growing up, we had sugar smacks, what's now honey smacks, honeycombs, tricks, fruit loops. Later it was kicks and rice krispies, frosted mini wheats. Did you all have breakfast cereals growing up? I'm really curious. And like how do you position that now, just psychologically knowing that they have this kind of possible effect on your health or well being? You know, I sort of buried the
0: lead at the top, you know. I mean, I'm talking about National Cereal Day. Yeah, of <laughs> course, I love cereal. And as a kid, funny enough, I, I think my favorite was Cookie Crisp, which is actually one of the banned American cereals in Canada. So there you go. I was eating a banned cereal, but I, it was those <laughs> Reese's Puffs. And I mean, if we're talking sugar content, those have really got to be near the top of the list. And that's a little too much for me now. It's like contraband? If you smuggle in a box of Cookie Crisp into Canada, is that like considered contraband? Next time next time I'm going up there, maybe I'll bring it with me. I'll see what happens. I don't and, know if uh, you I want get, to cross get, the I border. I get dragged off the plane. I get <laughs> <laughs> like one of those crazy people with my box of cookie crisps. And so it's a little too much for me now. But as you said, like frosted mini wheats, those are great. I love frosted mini wheats, Raisin Bran. Maybe a little bit more of a controversial choice, but I've been a huge fan of those too. Well, you know, I'm just thinking back, you know, being a kid, Saturday morning
2: cartoons, you open yeah. that box of cereal and my, my, my go-to's were either Fruity Pebbles Captain Crunch, uh, Cookie Crisp, so apparently I couldn't go to Canada either. And of course, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if people remember, but the triple threat of uh, Count Chocula, Frankenberry, and <laughs> uh, Booberry. They all had their made-up monsters <laughs> on the cover. But I love cereal as well. I think it's a great food. I love it either with milk or even, honestly, just kind of eating it dry sometimes. I'll just kind of don't tell my wife and kids this, but I'll stick my hand in the box and just start eating. <laughs> you know, my kids, they're all a little bit younger. So their go to's are uh, Cinnamon Toast Crunches, super popular mm-hmm. in my house, uh, Lucky Charms, Fruit Loops, and also like, I guess it's chocolate Chex mix and... uh, Chocolate Chex mix. Yeah, I think that's the cereal Mm -hmm. and maybe cinnamon um, Chex, but definitely cinnamon toast crunch is probably their favorite. Have you all
1: noticed if they're any more expensive, say, recently than they were maybe this time last year?
2: I can definitely speak to the fact that they are definitely more expensive. I'd say probably 10 to 15% more. I know Sean's talked about shrinkflation before in our coffee podcast, and it definitely seems that the boxes have gotten smaller as well. They might be a thinner width. They seem to make them look like if you're looking straight on, they look the same. But then when you turn them sideways, they seem a lot more shallow
0: than they used to be. You know, sometimes what they'll do is they'll keep the box the same size, but they'll decrease the net weight of what's inside of it. That's what you have to actually look at is the net weight, not necessarily the packaging. And the name brands, for sure, are more expensive. I buy generic store brands. You know, I, you know from our prior conversations, I'm really not one to hammer home some of the cliche, ultra frugal financial advice. But, you know, I'll tell you, the prices on the name brand cereal, sometimes I'm just like, wow, that is really crazy. Yeah, I've seen something like Captain Crunch Crunchberries up
1: 114%. I mean, this is one of the more sugar laden cereals, but that's a, a significant hike over last year. That's from one statistic that I saw from a company that, that was looking at the statistics from purchases off of Amazon. But 114%, you know, that's, that's pretty
0: hefty. Grain prices have continued to soften almost perpetually since May of last year. This is going to be another big factor in the cost of the cereal. It's helped to offset some of the cost pressure that cereal producers would have felt if prices of both commodities were rising. So you've got sugar up, grain down, little bit of canceling each other out there. You know, we talked on the podcast a few months back about risks facing the global supply of the wheat crop specifically. Those futures have remained subdued. And if that pattern were to reverse and grain prices began rising, that would compound the pressure from sugar, probably make the cereal companies feel the sting of surging sugar prices a bit more acutely. Until then, however, I, I feel that cereal won't be one of the product categories seeing severely above average inflation. And I can't just imagine that Captain Crunch Crunchberries is
1: going for like $30 if sugar prices go higher and grain prices aren't enough to offset. And That's mostly sugar, I think. Yeah, it's, and it's really hard to separate out the marketing of these from what you're actually getting in your bowl. You know, when you think about the health benefits that are touted from certain cereals, like Chex, perhaps, or Cinnamon Toast Crunch, or, or Honey Nut Cheerios, or Life. I mean, boy, Life cereal, there's really no better benefit than Life, I would say. Why those other kids didn't like Life, I don't know. Why they had to pass it off to Mikey, I, I have no idea. And what you look at in your bowl, when you just take a hard look at it and divorce yourself from the marketing that takes place, you have to ask, is this really food fit for consumption? Lucky Charms is just a bowl of dried up puffed sugar, basically, it seems. I don't know. It makes the milk taste, you know, pretty good for a little while, but then, you know, you Start to wonder whether this is really going to help you out in the future in terms of health impacts. And so marketing it towards kids, it's a whole other story. But yes, it looks like the elevated prices of sugar and the, the amount of sugar that goes into these cereals is really having an impact. So I'd love to ask Jeff where he sees company stocks like Kellogg's and General Mills going. I remember, Sean, you were talking about demand at any cost, but I don't know. These both hit like 52-week lows recently, didn't they?
2: They did, yeah. Kellogg's and General Mills, they're both trading near or at their 52-week lows. I think it was last Wednesday, in fact, that they both hit the 52-week low. You know, then the other couple of major players, you know, post holdings, which they own a couple other items such as like Peter Pan, Peanut Butter. They seem to kind of be cruising along, and then Pepsi, which is really hard to decipher, because obviously they own Frito Lay, they own you know soft drinks are such a big part of it as well, besides for their cereal business. So th- those other two ones are a little bit harder to kind of do a direct correlation, but but certainly with Kellogg's and General Mills, the stock price is hurting somewhat in the last year or so
0: the impact of high sugar costs may not be impacting the companies making cereal as significantly as it had in the back half of 2022 and the first half of this year. Sugar prices are rising more gradually now than they were in those periods. So they're going up, but not as sharp. I know Kellogg's is undergoing a restructuring. And I
1: don't know, I mean, there are sugar substitutes. There's like beet sugar and cane sugar, I think we mentioned. And for those people who are more health conscious... Is there a sugar substitute market that
0: rivals the raw sugar market, the refined sugar market? Probably not in the near term. Personally, I don't use sugar in my coffee. I actually use stevia. I like the idea of zero calorie, right? That's one of those things that appeals to me about alternatives to sugar. So any kind of sweetener like that, you're going to have that kind of appeal but what we're actually seeing with the demand trend of sugar is that it's rising globally. That's why we're seeing the prices go up so aggressively is it's really a demand side, even in light of higher interest rates and slowing growth in, in many parts of the global economy, or at least some parts of the global economy. We've not seen demand drop off for sugar all that much. There definitely is some amount of its market share being bitten off by alternatives, but nothing that would eat its lunch in the near term, I don't think.
1: Yeah. It's been sold on the market as a commodity since 1914. I think it's very well entrenched as a staple in our diets or our habits. Very hard to replace that. What do you think, Jeff?
2: Yeah. I'm not too keen on like the chemical substitutions. I would imagine if manufacturers were able to put, like say, beet sugar in or, or some other natural substitute, I wouldn't have any issue with it at all. I mean, it's more, I guess, a taste preference. I would imagine they'd be able to do it seamlessly and not alter the taste of the product.
1: Well, I can tell you, I loved honeycombs and I loved tricks. And, you know, I missed the prizes and the boxes and I missed these. I guess I could have them again, but I have a feeling they're just not the same that they used to be. I have a feeling that they just produce these very differently from the way they
0: did when I was growing up. And so I just won't touch anything anymore. You know, it's interesting, Stephen, too, that you mentioned kind of. Your declining demand for cereal, right? It's a little bit of an anecdotal example. But we're seeing that across the American populace. It's one of the fading items in the American breakfast. You know, you mentioned Kellogg's, who's a real cereal giant and just reported second quarter uh, earnings earlier this month. They're in an interesting spot when it comes to the cereal business. For the company as a whole, their net income expanded year over year. Sales were up by about 4.6%. Uh, largely due to price hikes. But if you look at the cereal business by itself, its North American sales were only up by 1.8% from last year. That's seriously trailing snacks and frozen foods growth. It's creating a drag on the company. And it's probably why, as you mentioned, uh, Kellogg's is trying to spin out the cereal business into its own standalone company, perhaps to the dismay of its existing shareholders. (laughs) Yeah, Cereal is is, is suffering from a transformation of the carbohydrate-heavy American breakfast, which is really probably going to affect other perceived breakfast foods as well. Two major forces driving that, one being just growing emphasis on protein over carbohydrates. It's probably going to protect things like eggs and meats in in the breakfast and degrade the consumption of cereal, pancakes, waffles, but the other factor is a general sort of abstinence from breakfast altogether with the popularity of intermittent fasting. And yeah. I do that myself, and I haven't regularly eaten breakfast in a long time. Yeah, heard that. Uh, but it's maybe a little bit more of an unsettling development. But Americans are skipping breakfast more frequently due to it simply being more expensive. The Wall Street Journal had an article out in March, I believe, that was titled, To Save Money, Maybe You Should Skip Breakfast. And the text of the article was more focused on the degree to which breakfast food prices were rising, not necessarily suggesting you, know, you should not eat breakfast to deal with that. But the headline was very ominous. And that's, that's just another one of these factors for cereals, like yeah. sugar-heavy foods in general, in the American breakfast, I think that's negative. I've heard people increasingly going
1: without breakfast. And I remember this cartoon. It was sort of like a stop-motion animation when I was growing up. And there were these tops and there was like five tops, right? And four of the tops would spin and then they'd just fall. But one top kept going and then it would stop mid-turn and it would say, I had my breakfast and they didn't, Mm. right? And so it was kind of a promotion to like, you know, say that you have to start your day off right. You have to eat breakfast. But now I'm finding that maybe it's not even healthy for you to digest so much protein so early in the morning. I mean, there's all of these kinds of questions as well. I don't know the answers to them. It seems to keep changing every year. And so we'll just go with what we've got, right? Which are higher elevated sugar prices, a great deal of sugar being consumed by producers of breakfast cereals and very expensive breakfast cereals and lower stock in Kellogg's and General Mills. And basically that's where we're going. And let's just hope El Nino doesn't destroy the outlook so much so that it gets even more and more expensive on the consumer side, I suppose, for those who are holding sugar futures. That would
2: be a plus. Yes, that's what it would seem. Yeah, I think I'm just going to go have a bowl of cereal after this uh, while listening (laughs) to this podcast. I'm going to go hit the uh, cinnamon toast crunch out of my pantry. I think.
1: (laughs) This has been really great. Sean, Jeff, thanks so much again for taking the time to do this. This has been really another fascinating commodities futures-related podcast for our listeners. You can read more commentary and market analysis at IBKR Traders Insight at our IBKR campus. That's at IBKRcampus.com. You can keep abreast there about topics we've discussed here today, as well as a wide range of other news critical to your investment decisions. Mac Research Partners got a host of articles on several themes, from central banks and gold buying to issues involving cybersecurity. Contact Rob Davis for more details. He's at rob at That'll be in the show notes. And for a full list of financial offerings, visit the IBKR campus where, as always, all of our educational material is presented to the public at no cost. And wherever you listen to your podcasts, please rate and review us. We'd love to hear from you. And Until next time, I'm Stephen Levine with Interactive Brokers. Thanks for listening to IBKR Podcasts. As always, we have more episodes at IBKRpodcasts.com. And if you're interested in learning more about Interactive Brokers, visit IBKR.com. We offer more trading education materials such as webinars at IBKRwebinars.com, Financial and economic commentary at tradersinsight.news. Market-related courses at tradersacademy.online. And quant-related articles at ibkrquant.com. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and is necessary seek professional advice. Futures are not suitable for all investors. The amount you may lose may be greater than your initial investment. Before trading futures, please read the CFTC Risk Disclosure. A copy and additional information are available at IBKR.com.